every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to the middle of the week. This is Peter Lewis with the latest business news from across Asia in Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In the headlines for Wednesday, the 21st of February, China's panel banks surprised markets Tuesday with a larger than expected cut to a benchmark rate used for pricing mortgage loans. The People's Bank of China kept the one-year loan prime rate unchanged at 3.45%, but surprisingly cut the five-year LPR by 25 basis points to 3.95%. It was the first time the five-year rate was cut since May 2023, and the 25 basis point cut was also the largest cut to the five-year LPR on record. Hong Kong's seasonally adjusted unemployment rate was 2.9% in the three months ending January, remaining unchanged for the fourth consecutive period. The number of unemployed people dropped by 3,100 from a month earlier to an almost five-year low of 102,600, while employment decreased by 9,800 to 3.697 million. Meanwhile, the youth unemployment rate, measuring job seekers between 20 to 29 years old, edged down to 5.6% from 5 previously. Australia on Tuesday outlined a decade-long plan to double its fleet of major warships and boost defence spending by an additional $7 billion to counter China's military build-up in the Pacific region. The investments will give Australia its largest navy since the Second World War, and the plan would see Australia increase its defence spending to 2.4% of GDP, above the 2% target set by its NATO allies. Singapore Airlines delivered its biggest quarterly profit on record as demand for flights kept airfares elevated. Net profit totaled around 550 million US dollars in the first quarter of its fiscal year that started in April, and revenues rose to 4.48 Singapore billion dollars from 3.93 billion a year earlier. The demand for air travel remains healthy, the carrier said in a statement, adding that forward sales continue to be robust. In today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Feil, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. And with a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And don't forget how to get in touch. You can post questions or comments on the Money Talk website at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com or on Facebook, Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page and on X at Money Talk R3. On Wall Street, US stocks were dragged lower by NVIDIA at the start of a holiday-shortened week. The S&P 500 slipped 0.6% to end at 4,976. Losses in the Dow were limited by a 3.2% rally in Walmart following robust fourth quarter results. The 30 stock index dipped 64 points or 0.2%, settling at 38,564. The Nasdaq Composite fell 0.9% to 15,631 amid a sell-off in tech shares. Ahead of its earnings later today, NVIDIA shares were down 4.4%. Advanced micro devices and applied materials also shed about 5% each. US Treasury yields fell ahead of the Fed's January meeting minutes, which are due out later today, and also after soft Canadian CPI data eased global inflationary concerns. The interest rate-sensitive two-year yield fell three basis points to 4.61%. The 10-year yield slipped one basis point to 4.28%. 
The US dollar index weakened 0.2% on Tuesday to hit the lowest level in about two weeks. The yen was little changed, around 150 yen to the dollar. China's state-owned banks stepped in to sell dollars on Tuesday in their bid to stem the slide in the yuan following a cut to the country's key five-year loan prime rate. The yuan was trading at around 7.19 against the dollar in Shanghai, 0.1% stronger on the day. And one other currency to note in Asia, the Malaysian ringgit extended declines to its lowest level since the Asian financial crisis, prompting Malaysia's central bank to say it doesn't reflect the improving outlook for the economy. The local currency briefly slipped past 4.8 against the dollar on Tuesday. That's its weakest level in 26 years since it reached an all-time low of 4.88 and a half in 1998. Gold closed 0.3% higher at $2,023 an ounce. Brent crude oil dropped 1.2% to $82.34 a barrel. Equities in Hong Kong and China recovered from early losses on Tuesday as investors assessed China's efforts to stimulate its property market by cutting its benchmark reference rate for mortgages. Mainland China's CSI 300 opened lower, but it recovered from losses of 0.7% in the final hour of trading with help from the so-called national team to close 0.2% higher. Hong Kong stocks also recovered from early losses to close higher. The Hang Seng Index approached its best level in six weeks climbing 92 points or 0.6% to 16,248. And it does look like the uh, Hang Seng is going to open slightly lower this morning. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 0.1% with the index projected to open around 16,225. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our Wednesday morning guest. We have with us our regular commentator on a Wednesday, Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us, Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. Welcome back, Patrick. <laughs> Yes, good morning, Peter. China's panel banks surprised markets Tuesday with a larger-than-expected cut to a benchmark rate, which is used for pricing mortgage loans. The People's Bank of China kept the one-year loan prime rate unchanged at 3.45%, um, but it surprisingly cut the five-year LPR by 25 basis points to 3.95%. It was the first time the five-year rate has been cut since May last year, and the 25 basis point cut is also the the largest cut to the five-year LPR on record. So, NGO, clearly uh, the PBOC concerned about the property market, but what sort of impact will this have? I think very limited, Peter, because it just seems as if they're trying to apply a cyclical band-aid to a, structure, to a structural problem called party-state capitalism. Um, there's a little way that a cyclical rate cut can boost the market for the simple reason that the property market itself, as we all know, is deeply sort of in, in stock. And also, the slimming of the bank margins are not exactly going to make the banks sort of keen to keep on lending if, if they keep on finding their margins squeezed by virtue of diktat. So I don't think this is going to be very effective if the government really wants to boost growth, which is its decision, of course, not ours, then it has to decide how to do that, but but applying a cyclical band-aid to a structural problem 
it's a bit like sort of trying to use scotch tape on on a on a Teflon band on a Teflon pot. Mm. It, it seems, doesn't it, that people on the mainland are not particularly interested in buying property at the moment. So saying to them, you can have a cheaper mortgage um, is probably not going to change their minds on that. that. Precisely. And that's all because of the income insecurity, which has been arising for some months now. I, again, believe because the whole focus has shifted very much to an intensification of the state party capitalism, whereby the the party will dictate what companies are to do. And the, so the, the, the free market idea that we have in the West has gone pretty much out the window. And it, it seems from what we're hearing from Beijing that um, uh, the Chinese government wants to be more involved in the property market itself. It wants the states to more control now um, the, the provision of, of housing and um, for, uh, for people on the mainland yeah. rather than the markets doing it and private property developers. What, what do you think of that? Well, again, because of my education under von Hayek, I just cannot fathom how this is going to boost growth. Um, it's it's this. It goes into this thing that we'll discuss later about this obsession with hitting numerical targets. Um, five is a magic number, but nobody really worries about the composition of that five. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't see growth picking up on the basis of this approach to boosting growth by boosting supply. Patrick, what, what do you make of this? Is, is the PBOC sort of trying a shock and awe tactic here? Because it, it certainly was a surprise, wasn't it, uh, in terms of the cut to the five-year well, rate? Yeah. You look, it certainly was a surprise in terms of the uh, magnitude, but uh, you know, I'm certainly on the uh, on the same page here with uh, Azenzio. Um, you know, this is a band aid and uh, and one which will come off in the first shower. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, it, uh, it it's not about um, it, it, it's it's not about the price of money. It, it's about the demand for money, and the demand is just not there. Uh, so you could cut the price to whatever you might like to, but um, you know, that's not going to boost the sector. Uh, we've seen for some months now, I think it's more than 12 months now, we've seen actually you know, mortgage demand has been slowing. Uh, we saw early last year, we saw um, uh, mortgage holders actually repaying their uh, their mortgages because they'd lost confidence in the sector. Uh, and that's only been intensified uh, over the last few months. So, no, unfortunately, I don't see this as uh, you know as being any as being any aid. And the other and the further negative kicker to it has already been mentioned that uh, it impacts the uh, on on banks' margins. So it's a uh, you know while it seems to be a move in the right direction, I, I don't see any um, you know, any merit in it uh, at this point. What would it take then to to change um, people's views on on the sector and and to want to get back in and and start buying property again? Well, well, yeah, it's got to be like a you know a wholesale restructuring of the sector. Yes, uh, we're we're starting to see. Well, we're, we're the very very early stages of that um, with large uh, developers, you know, being allowed to, you know, being allowed or will be allowed to, you know, to fail. Um, you know, we've got a lot. It's a long, long process uh, ahead of us to see that happen. Uh, the state wanting to take a, a greater share of it. You know, we're really regressing. Uh, and some of the good work that has been you know, has been done over the last uh, you know you know ten to twenty years uh, you know is is being unwound. So uh, I have a you know, quite a pessimistic uh, outlook uh, mm-hmm. that this restructuring, which is necessary, 
uh, will take some, will take some extended period. Mm. So, if this doesn't work, what do the what do the PBOC do next? Do they cut rates further? Do they cut the triple R? Is there any more room uh, for the for the PBOC to to ease policy further after this? Yeah, look, I think there is there is room to ease policy further, and uh, you know, and ultimately you get to a, you get to a price level. Uh, which will become attractive, and that's you know, that's not now. Uh, the triple R can be cut further. That will uh, you know that will put more more stress on the on the banking sector because we've mm. already got the you know lower lower margins and uh, and banks being you know encouraged or uh, you know instructed to lend more. Um, you know the the issue you know the issue is is the price of the uh, is the price of the asset and the asset is uh, is overvalued. Mm. So, Enzio, what, what are your thoughts then about um, overall the, the Chinese economy? We're starting in a new sort of year. Premier Li Chang was urging officials um, at the beginning of the week to, to work on boosting confidence um, and, and to make a priority um, of, of trying to boost confidence on the mainland. What can they do? We've got the two sessions coming up, haven't we, at the beginning of March. What, what should we be looking out for? Well, not at the not at the chubby hearts campaign that we've had in Hong Kong, which is not dissimilar in the sense of let's all have a feel good factor. And then surprise, surprise, Merlin comes into the stage and decides to wave the magic wand and off we go. That can't work. I really think that unless the companies are allowed to create employment where they see the demand for employment, as opposed to being told where to create employment, because the government has decided in its wisdom this is where employment needs to be created until that that whole mindset switches i'm afraid it's going to become like japan it's just going to go and sink into a hole for some years and i don't see that um changing william pezek wrote a very good book on japanization and um the challenges the bank center financial system maturing economy bad demographics deflating bubble has created a mountain of bad loans. All of these things that also Gillian Tett pointed out in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago, they're coming home to roost in China. And, and until, but it's, it's the basic mindset. They can cut rates as much as they want, but if people don't feel secure about their jobs and th- they're not going to go out and spend, it's, just, it's, it's as simple as that, whether they're Chinese or German or indeed even Kiwis. But it sounds like you're going to be disappointed, NGO, because it seems that the, the, the government believes that the solution to what's going wrong, wrong is not less state intervention, but more state intervention. Yes. They're believing the problem is there just simply isn't enough state control over the, the economy and they need to take greater control over that and over things like the property market and in terms of the state really providing uh, property for people rather than the private market. Yeah, and... I'm not going to disagree with what the state wants. That's not for me. That's not my place. I can only, as an economist, point out, as I suspect also Patrick is doing, that these are the consequences of pursuing that supply-driven policy. We did in the in the Reagan years have the old adages of supply creates demand, but in this case, it's not creating demand because the supply is being not dictated by the market, but indeed by individuals sitting in government cubby holes conjuring up dream views of the chubby hearts campaign what might happen if they do this and of course that's not going to happen patrick do you worry about this is this something that's also on your radar screen that simply um you know the government is just trying to have too much state control over the economy and over trying to create demand 
Yeah, look, certainly it's it's a concern. Uh, you know, I can uh, sympathise if that's the correct word. Uh, you know, with their efforts. Uh, you know, when the uh, when the private sector is is failing as it is now, it's uh, it is incumbent on the I believe it's incumbent on the on the on the public sector to uh, you know to step in, uh, but to step in to backstop it at what level is 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 the question we come to, and I believe it's going to be at a, a much slower growth rate than is than the uh, than these overly ambitious targets. Uh, I think the other uh, section to it, at least in the next six to twelve and perhaps eighteen months, is the uh, you know is the state of external demand, is the state of global demand as it mm-hmm. affects um, Chinese activity. Uh, we know that uh, that global demand is is being impacted by you know tight and and remaining tight monetary policy. That's one of the you know the key focuses of uh, of markets at the moment. So that's another headwind that uh, that China has to deal with. Uh, and the outlook then is, you know, is certainly for, uh, you know, is for softer and and slower growth. Uh, yes, perhaps with more uh, state intervention, which is only going to make the recovery, the eventual recovery, uh, you know, perhaps in one to two years or more, uh, you know, that much harder. And this is going to be an issue, isn't it, for um, trading partners overseas, that, that China's overcapacity in areas like electric vehicles, in batteries, in solar panels, um, that that, uh, that overcapacity, that supply is going to get dumped onto world markets. And we've already had the US saying this week that they're not going to allow that to happen. Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, you know, those uh, those concerns are, are very real. Uh, the the concerns about if you are a, a uh, an exporter to uh, to China of uh, you know of raw industrial commodities or of uh, or of anything, uh, then that your demand you know the demand situation in China is going to be challenged. Uh, just as China's uh, you know external demand will be will be softened as well. So, you know, some of this is the uh, is a result of, of policies in China that have been operating for some time. Uh, others uh, of this and the, on the demand side are the result of policies uh, of global central banks, uh, which also have been uh, developing for some time, you know, right back to the early or, you know, post the, the GFC and the, uh, you know, the profligate uh, expansion of monetary policy and now only the very belated uh, reigning in of that. Uh, you know, is affecting global demand and global activity uh, more widely. Are you encouraged at all about domestic demand from the fact that at least uh, travel and tourism picked up over the, the Chinese New Year holiday? Is, is that a, a promising sign going forward or is that rather just something specific to this particular time of year? Look, I think it can only be uh, – look, I think it's encouraging, but I think it can only be pent-up demand. Uh, yes. And I think we've seen that, uh, you know, we've seen that elsewhere as well. You know, people have not been able to travel, you know, for upwards of two, you know, sometimes you know, nearly three years. So I think pent-up demand has a lot to uh, – or has the, the greatest uh, degree of impact here. Uh, and if things are to stay the same, and I believe they are and perhaps get worse, then I do not see those those sort of numbers being repeated. What about you, Anthony? Peter, if, yeah, if I could just add, we see this in Hong Kong with a lot of mainland tourists coming into Hong Kong, but it really to window shop. They eat at McDonald's. They eat at the Chinese fast food places. That's hardly a boost to our economy. They're not really spending in the sense of the lavish um, d- doling out of money. And so I think it's, again, it's exactly what Peter says. It's, it's pent-up demand, but very much on, on the the cheap track. And I think that's so tourism numbers, again, the number itself isn't really 
good enough. It, it's, it, it's what's behind the number. Mm, so the volume of trips is, has increased, but the value maybe hasn't because people are spending Absolutely. less. They're going on budget trips and, and being careful what they spend. Yes, yes. And again, it goes back to this whole theme of income insecurity. Um, and that's uh, until that goes away, um, consumption, which is 75% of any economy, is just not going to take off. Mm. And another piece of data that we had out uh, earlier this week is that China reported its smallest annual foreign direct investment yes. since the 1990s, foreign companies pulling their money out of the economy yes. in favour of opportunities elsewhere. Um, China's direct investment liabilities, that also includes business earnings, which are retained in the country, and also investments into the country's capital markets, mm. rose by just $33 billion um, in, in 2023. I yeah. mean, that, that presumably is a worry as well, isn't it? That um, not only is domestic demand not uh, improving, but also sort of foreign investment is tumbling. Well, it's the flip side of the same Hello. coin. Oh, I'm sorry, Peter. Yeah, Patrick, go ahead. Yeah, look, it, it certainly is a concern. Um, you know, it's a concern if you look at the currency. There's, uh, you know, those tenets of support for the currency that we had previously. One was the FDI. One was portfolio info. Uh, another being a, uh, you know, a tool to uh, to ameliorate the impacts of uh, inflation. All of those things are gone. Uh, so you know, pressure on the uh, on the currency, I think, is is bound to follow. Uh, you know, you know these, these results. Now, mm. uh, I would just add, you know, the final one, um, as I you know, continue to harp on about, uh, you know, glo higher global interest rates uh, are also uh, you know suppressing FDI. But again, you know, yeah. the picture that we continue to build up uh, regarding China is one which is uh, you know is, is just not encouraging. Andrew, I just wanted to add to, to what Patrick is saying that. From a different angle, that when I was doing my doctorate on direct investments, the my surprising conclusion was that companies go abroad and direct and and invest directly abroad, not as an export base, as a cheap export base. That's what that's the that's the newspaper story, but really to sell more into the local market in in China. Mercedes selling more cars, surprise, surprise, or Volkswagen or whatever, mm. and it's it's so the the foreign the the Slack and foreign direct investment has more to do with this whole downfall of Chinese domestic demand back to the retail sales, back to the private consumption than it does with any of the export markets, which play a role, of course, for China, people going to China. But that's not really where the action's at. It's more and more fulfilling domestic demand, which is waiting so to get domestic demand going again in, in, in what is rather a moribund economy, what, mm. what do we need to see from the two sessions, if there is indeed anything that the two sessions can do? Because there are some question marks over whether this, uh, that this gathering really has any power to, to decide anything these days. But, but what would you like to see to try and get demand back on track and to get the economy moving again? My view would be that the whole mindset needs to change to you can still have your party state capitalism. In other words, the the party cells have always been in Chinese companies. That's not new. Just like German unions have always been on the boards of German companies, which is not bad in itself. It's the degree of interference as opposed to just being an observer on the board and seeing what's going on. That's I think where the nub comes in. The rub comes in, mm -hmm. and I think until this this activated party state capitalism is toned down, 
and the leadership decides that it's really time for the market to continue dictating where it wants to create jobs because of demand, then I think you're going to find the place going nowhere in a hurry or Japanese. Patrick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, exactly the same thing, or you know, very, very similar. That um, you know, until I mean, China has made a uh, a decision, you know, a, a, a decision some time ago to be involved in the uh, in the global economy. You know, external demand has been mm. important. Uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to shut that down, then go back to uh, you know a, a closed off society, you know, closed off economy. Then that uh, you know that that's not good for anyone. Uh, so, so given that that's going to continue, yes, uh, the state influence has to be tapered, uh, has to be tapered off, mm. has, to, has to taper off uh, more free market. Uh, you know, allowing, as Enjo mentioned earlier, allowing uh, you know, companies to employ in areas and sectors that they that they wish to. Now, the problem with that, of course, is the cost. Uh, is the cost in the uh, you know in the initial years of doing that? So, you know, we're either based with low and slow growth for a long time. Uh, or we're faced with a you know a deeper slump than we're seeing now yeah. uh, before a uh, before an eventual recovery. So uh, you know, neither of those paths look to be uh, you know mm. look look to be very attractive. Uh, and I uh, you know I hold uh, I hold fears for the uh, the outlook for the economy you know, certainly in the next one to two years. In that yes. case, presumably, you have some fears for the markets as well, because oh, um, God, yes. people had been hoping that we were going to see a bit of a catch-up rally in Shanghai and Shenzhen when Ooh. the markets reopened this week. Hasn't really been the case, has it? I mean, it wasn't that long ago, whereas if you had a 25 basis point rate cut, Chinese shares would have sort of rallied to the moon. But that that isn't the case right now, is it? No, absolutely not. There was no, absolutely not. There was a there was a time. Uh, absolutely, uh, any rate cut in China was, uh, you know, was cheered. Uh, you know, from Australia to uh, you know to the, to the eurozone. Yes, and, you know, that that's just not uh, that's not happening now, and that's appropriate that it's not that it's not happening. So, yeah, I think markets, uh, you know, markets into the year uh, with an expectation or a hope uh, that China would recover. Um, that's not happening. Uh, markets enter the year and continue to be um, of the opinion that rates will be cut sooner rather than later. Uh, I have I have serious doubts about that. I think we will hear about that tonight uh, from the FOMC. So, you know, unfortunately yeah. or otherwise, um, you know, the outlook for markets I think is uh, you know is quite fragile at what are some markets uh, very extended levels. But we've got no shortage of stabilisation measures, have we, in place at the moment? So we're hearing of, um, you know, the authorities stopping hedge funds from selling um, stock. We're talking mm. about hearing about bailout funds. Um, none of this seems to be really having much of a difference or certainly not really convincing investors to, to get back into the market. It's, it's again because they're trying to apply a cyclical Band-Aid to a structural problem, as Patrick was saying quite quite visually, that the Band-Aid comes off in the shower. Mm. Yeah, Patrick, the, the, these stabilisation measures, what, what do you make of them? Yeah, again, the, again, the Band-Aids, uh, you know, it's not going to, uh, they're not going to sustain, uh, it's not going to sustain the market in, in the long term. Uh, I think it, at one level, it just identifies to investors that perhaps were not so aware that uh, that things are, uh, you know, things are in, in some sort of strife. Um, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a free market, uh, you know, yeah. a, a, 
sponsor of the free market. Uh, and I think we're not seeing that at the moment. Mm. And it certainly doesn't seem to be enough to tempt foreign investors who have been bailing out no. to, to come back into the markets. Well, no, there are enough not. other places to go also. You know, it's not just China isn't isn't the only um, pretty girl on the block. Mm. Well, you've got Japan now, haven't you? And India, both doing pretty well. Japan, um, well, Japan, India, India has... Mexico, maybe Brazil, maybe Argentina. I mean, there's and especially in this interconnected world with the internet, heaven help me. Um, it's just it's it's a different race, and so the whole game of competition is a very very visceral one these days. It's not just sort of um, we, it's 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 not just believe me because I'm I'm going to hype the story up and issue some chubby balloons and then say, let's all smile and it's all going to be wonderful. That doesn't work anymore. Mm. Let me ask you both uh, about the US because there's two big events coming up later today in the US that could have an impact on markets. First of all, we get the minutes of uh, the last FOMC meeting, which will hopefully give us some sort of idea about the the FOMC's thoughts on rate cuts. And then also we've got uh, NVIDIA's earnings, which could possibly be the most important out of the current uh, uh, fourth quarter results season to tell us how the uh, the AI uh, trend is going. Um, Patrick, your thoughts first on, on the FOMC? What should we we be looking out for there? Uh, I think we should not be looking out for too much insight on when rates are going to be cut. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think the market is uh, is still well ahead of itself uh, when it comes to that. Um, you know, look at uh, you know, nominal GDP uh, levels. You know, still very high, still you know, much higher than are associated with uh, you know, with interest rates, with term interest rates where they are now. Uh, to me. Uh, we still have a, uh, a situation of too much money chasing too few things. Uh, so that is inflation. Mm. Uh, I think rate, I think rates are going to are staying high uh, for a considerable period. And I, I think the market may unfortunately be once again disappointed yes. when they read the, the FMC's yeah. words right. uh, that, they are, that they are not ready to be uh, cutting rates yet. Enzio? I totally agree. The, the core inflation at, at 3.9% is about just about double the Fed's desired inflation rate of two percent. So, I, I never, I never, and I'm sure Patrick didn't bought, nor probably you, Peter. This whole idea that we're going to have five rate cuts this mm. year. I think people were just getting a little bit ahead of themselves, frankly. Mm. What What do you make of Larry Summers' comments that it's not inconceivable that rates could actually go up in the next move? He's not putting a high probability on it. He was saying maybe about fifteen percent, but he said, um, you know, there is still a possibility that rates could be going buying. up. Yeah, look. Yeah, look, I, I, look. I think it, uh, it it just alerts to the possibility that the market is underpricing uh, at the moment, uh, and that is, you know, that's you know something something like that is needed uh, to, I believe, to bring the market back into better balance. Mm. Not the fact that they're going to go up, but the fact that there should be more than zero consideration uh, that they're not going to. Mm. I mean, if you look at the data, um, it seems to be showing right now that sort of inflation is rather sticky around the 3% level. And it it makes it rather difficult for the Fed to be cutting rates at all at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, look, it's just not possible at, at, at this level. The, you know, no, the Fed no. is, 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 is not about to be cutting rates. Growth is strong. Uh, inflation is still too uncomfortably high. Uh, we're still in a uh, we're still in a tightening phase. NCO? I also would add to that to sort of mess it up a little bit that the U.S. corporate bosses are losing optimism, according to the Economist, of the tenth of March of this year. They're seeing. Consumers running out of steam because the excess savings accrued by shoppers during the pandemic have now been whittled away. 
the Chinese consumer health warning. We were discussed that we discussed that before a little bit. This in, income insecurity in China, and finally, man, America's manufacturing boom is slowing. It has actually halved in the second half of last year. Real manuf- monthly factory construction, the rate stood at eight percent a year versus seventeen percent for the first half of the year. So there you have a slowing economy. You may have a tinge of stagflation. Indeed, come through. And, and Patrick, let me ask you about uh, Nvidia. It's obviously the the bellwether stock, isn't it, for the for the AI boom uh, that's been really driving markets um, sort of higher. So this could be the most important out of all the stocks that have been reporting in the in the fourth quarter. But obviously, great expectations um, from it. Yeah, look, great expectations, and we've seen some uh, some profit taking uh, ahead of the result, which is not uh, which is not surprising. Uh, I think this is a uh, you know a long term sector f- uh, f- that people want to be invested in. Uh, you know, if we do see some disappointment to expectations, it will be only because those expectations are uh, you know are, are quite ambitious. So, you know, the long or the medium long term prospects are, are good. Uh, short-term volatility may, uh, you know, it, it may suffer from short-term volatility, uh, as do, uh, you know, as does everything else. Mm. And and when we look at um, how the markets are going in the US, we've had a five-week rally that's now sort of run out of steam. Um, last week, stocks were down for the first time oh. in in, uh, in five weeks. Do, do you get a sense, Patrick, that the the market might be ra- running out of steam here? I think it should be. Uh, I think to, to the degree that mm. um, you know some of the rally has been based in uh, expectation for cuts, uh, you know it should be mm. facing headwinds. Uh, on the other hand, uh, growth has remained uh, has remained firm. I, I think there needs to be some you know some rebalancing or some rationalisation here. I think there are still good uh, there are still good stocks out there. I think uh, the US economy is still performing okay. Uh, notwithstanding that it's come off, it's come off its peak. Um, but to, to expect that we push on to uh, higher and higher highs from here, I think, takes a, a leap of faith that I, I don't have. Uh, I don't have in me at this stage. I, I wonder, Enzio, just how much the the US is an outlier, both in terms of the you know the the economy and the markets, because we're seeing other countries around the world sink into recession, aren't we? Japan's in a technical recession, the UK's in a recession, Germany's in a uh, in a recession. Although in Japan's case, it's not stopping the markets um, heading towards um, sort of all time highs. Is, is the US maybe an outlier um, here in the strength of uh, the the economy there? I think it is, and I think it is for a very um, difficult reason for us economists trained in traditional economics because I think that the internet and this whole AI stuff is really changing the equations quite considerably in terms of how one has to think about these things. And I'm certainly work in progress when it comes to thinking about how this new economy actually operates. It isn't quite um, just the old paradigms that we've we've been growing used to that all demand is 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 demand all all, all inflation is demand driven, um, and so you can't just attack inflation from a demand side. We all know that, but I'm just saying to, one way to obfuscate things. It's the AI's influence, which is still very very nascent. But I think we have to all kind of revisit the toolbox and just make sure that we are actually in tune. That speaks just as much for me as as for any for others, perhaps other colleagues that that we're kind of keeping. In, in line with with its, with this change in the in the economic paradigms that we're going that we're that are happening in front of our eyes. 
Mm. Patrick, let me just finalise by asking you quickly about Japan. I mean, Japan's economy has uh, slipped into recession, but nevertheless, Mm. the stock market there uh, getting very close to that uh, 1989 um, high again. I'm sure we're going to get there, aren't we? (laughs) <laughs> Look, it certainly feels like it. I think we will. Uh, I think the currency remains weak uh, mm. against a strong dollar. Um, obviously, translation of uh, of Japanese uh, companies' offshore products back to Japan makes those numbers look better. Um, buying into the Japanese uh, market, you know, through the weaker yen, uh, has also been uh, enhanced. So yeah, I think we will. Uh, but yeah, amazing to think we're getting back to the mm. 1989 highs. It's, it's taken quite a while. I remember that was the time when I moved out to Japan for the for the first time. Okay, great to right. hear your thoughts. Thank you both very much. You heard there, Patrick Bennett, Hong Kong-based uh, macro strategist, and also Enzio von Fall, who is capital preservation specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Good morning, Peter. Um, well, the, uh, the the main headlines in Japan seems to be the economy in recession, but the Japanese market's virtually back at all-time highs. That uh, all-time high hit in, uh, on the final day of trading in 1989. It certainly looks like uh, Japan's back in a bull market, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's kind of a split screen for the ages, as you suggest, right? I mean, uh, the, the, the stock market is going gangbusters, the economy is flatlining to some extent. Um, the political system here, the prime minister's premiership, is in a bit of disarray. But uh, investors are very, very bullish on Japan. It's uh, it's fascinating. Is it helping him at all, the prime minister, the fact that the market is uh, almost back at an all-time high? I think it might actually do the opposite, because I think one of the problems that Prime Minister Kushida has had is that I think many Japanese have come to realize in the last year that inflation is rising a bit faster than wages. And Japanese are seeing headlines of the the, the Nikkei going gangbusters, and they're looking around saying, hey, what about the rest of us? We're not enjoying this prosperity. So in some ways, it actually might backfire on him. And, you know, usually in the U.S., you talk about this kind of positive wealth effect when the Dow Jones or the S&P 500 are rallying. A lot of American households think about their 401ks and their retirement accounts, and they think, well, that's good for me eventually. But I do think that in many ways, Japanese are looking at the stock market surging. They're looking at their own wages over the last, say, 10 years, and they're wondering when it might filter into their lives in a positive way. And I think they're still waiting for that. So it's interesting. Mm, we've got the next r- round of uh, wage negotiations coming up, aren't we? Uh, presumably the Bank of Japan is hoping uh, upon hope that uh, that we get a, a decent round this year. Indeed. Um, but you do read more and more about how a lot of companies are looking at the state of the economy. They're looking at the fact that Japan entered the year in recession. Um, and in many ways, will that in some ways, damage confidence in corporate Japan to raise wages at this point. And that's a bit of an open question. I think one of the problems that Japan is having with regard to these wage negotiations is that it's great to have a raise this year, but what about about next year? And I think in terms of changing consumer behavior that's been in a kind of deflationary funk for a long time, if you don't have confidence your wages are going to be increasing next year and year after, will you change your consumption habits the way in, in the ways that Japan's economy needs? And that is a bit of an open question. I think that Japan really is kind of uh, it's creating a, a riddle for the history books at the moment. And economists are trying to get their head around 
what these latest Shinto wage negotiations might mean for Japan and whether or not they'll go the way that investors had hoped. I certainly hope so. The Japanese do need a raise at this point. Mm. Does it feel like a recession over there? Because although the data says, you know, technically it is a recession, when you look at things like the employment market, that seems pretty robust. The unemployment rate's just 2.4%, an 11-month low. The tank and services um, are showing, you know, strong business conditions across pretty well all industries, really. Does it feel like a recession? It does not. It does not. But, you know, I think in many ways in the post-COVID world here in Japan, um, it's been harder to get a, a kind of intuitive sense walking around the city, walking around Tokyo in terms of what's going on. I think that, you know, if you go to if you go out to restaurants, bars, entertainment districts like Shibuya, um, Ginza, those areas, I'm not sure that the entertainment sectors ever fully recovered from COVID in many ways. And, you know, young Japanese, we keep reading about. Um, don't go out the way that, you know, middle-aged Japanese do. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's hard to get a feel for that for the most part. But I, I don't sense recession. No, I certainly don't. So what is the Bank of Japan to do? Has it has it missed its opportunity <laughs> to, to raise interest rates? It's rather hard to do it, isn't it, when um, the data says you're in recession? I mean, yes, I think the BOJ lost its window. Um, I think that the the last six months of last year would have been a perfect opportunity for the BOJ to, if not step away from QE officially, to at least telegraph a, a kind of blueprint and a timeline for doing so. Now, you have the situation where, A, the economy is in recession. Um, China is slowing, and I think that's that's affecting BOJ's psyche in a very big way. I think that the Bank of Japan is looking at their, you know, Japan's biggest trading partner, and saying things don't necessarily look so copacetic on that front. And you also have the political situation where the prime minister's approval ratings are, you know, 17%. And sure, you'd argue the BOJ is independent and they shouldn't care about that, but this is Japan. And so I do think the BOJ has missed its window. So every morning when I wake up and I read commentary about the BOJ will be raising interest rates by June, I, I kind of roll my eyes a bit. I mean, I, I maybe I'm wrong about this, but I, I don't see that as being possible. If you think that Governor Oeda is going to suddenly develop, uh, you know, a confidence gene that we haven't seen thus far, maybe we'll see. Mm. There is an argument that says that if the Bank of Japan were to raise rates, it would actually help um, the economy because banks would then, you know, be more willing to lend at, at higher rates, and presumably, you know, consumers get a bit of a windfall as well from higher rates. Do you think that's Do you think that's true? I think it's true, and I think also there's a psychological aspect here too. If you are a Japanese, you know, CEO, or you are an international investor investing in the Nikkei. And you're thinking that Japan is ready to move to the next level. Japan is ready to race forward. Japan is back, as you said in the intro to this this conversation. If the BOJ doesn't have the confidence, never mind to raise interest rates, just a step away from you know keeping training wheels on the economy. If the BOJ doesn't be fit to do so, why should investors and CEOs have confidence? And so I do think that the BOJ taking a deep breath, taking a plunge and saying, look, we're ready to live without the life support of QE. I think that would have a positive psychological effect. I really do. Mm, because at the end of the day, rates are still going to be very, very low, aren't they? Even if the Bank of Japan does raise um, interest rates, they'll, they'll probably be around zero. 
Exactly. And the, 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 the fact that, you know, more than 90% of Japanese government bonds are held domestically and they're held by every major institution from banks to endowments to pension funds to companies, basically there's this mutually assured destruction dynamic where nobody here wants rates to rise. Nobody wants yields to surge. And so the idea that the BOJ, even raising rates a little bit, would suddenly send yields right, you know, surging to two to three percent is a bit of a reach. And so I do think that it would be a confidence boosting effort uh, exercise, if you will, for the BOJ to pull off a rate hike or two, as long as they telegraph it in advance. And as long as it seems like an orderly and rational response, not a, a kind of knee jerk reaction to something. I, I really do think from a psychological standpoint, the BOJ normalizing rates would have a positive impact. Mm. And what would that do for the market? So ironically, you know, the, the markets, I mean, Japan must be the only country in the world at the moment where it's in recession, the central bank's about to raise rates and the markets are at all time highs pretty close to. Yeah. The split screen, right? I mean, I think, you know, one thing I wonder about, um, if you are a governor Oeda, and the last thing any Japanese CEO or any BOJ governor wants to be blamed for is causing the next recession, right? Or ruining a company or ruining the economy. And, you know, might Governor Oweda be looking at the stock market rising and saying, do I really want to be the guy <laughs> to take steps to send to send the market sharply lower? But I do think that we need someone to be an adult in the room. And the BOJ's job is, you know, we learned from the Federal Reserve years ago, is to pull away the punch bowl um, before the, the party really gets going. And at some point, investors are going to look down and they're going to say the road below us is not really there and so they'll start selling the nikkei because they realize that optimism on the market has outpaced economic fundamentals and so i do think again it's voj telegraph steps to normalize monetary policy to wrap up qe and to talk about raising rates by the you know by sort of the middle of the year it would have a negative effect on the market but in the long run i think that everything would even out Mm. So if, if we compare now the, the Japanese market almost very close to being back at an all-time high with 1989 when it was last um, at, at these levels, are there similarities between the, the, the two dates and what are the differences as well between the markets now and then? Well, I mean, you know, one of the, you know, one, one of the dissimilar situations, if you will, is that, is that the banking system in Japan is currently stable. Um, and you can argue the banking system here is actually reasonably healthy, unlike in the, the late 1980s. Basically, if the BOJ began raising interest rates the way it did in the late 80s, early 90s, the banking system is not sitting on basically a trillion dollars of, of unrealized losses. And so in some ways, the, the financial sector is a lot healthier to move forward. I think also, I think the Japanese population is ready for normalization. I mean, I think in many ways they are ready for the BOJ to take a step in the right direction. I think also Japan is realizing that the weak yen, 20 years of weak yen policies have kind of backfired, right? Because in many ways, you know, if you're a company, if you're a government official, why take risks to upgrade, to recalibrate economic engines when the BOJ has your back with free money left and right? So I think the differences between now and the late 1980s are pretty significant. And and also the the Japanese stock market is actually cheaper now, although it's at an all time high or close to an all time high than it was back in nineteen eighty nine. It was actually very expensive then, in fact, wasn't it? When you looked at the uh, the PE ratios and compare them to now, 
It is. And a lot, a lot of Japanese companies are cash rich. I mean, that's why Warren Buffett is, is here nibbling around. And I think one of the uh, the other things we have to look at where Japan is concerned right now is Japan has a bit of a safe haven halo at the moment. When you look at the global economy, when you look at what's happening in China, when you look at what's happening in Europe, when you look at what's happening in the U.S. in terms of, well, let's face it, political instability at this moment, um, Japan is a very, very hospitable, quiet place. Mm-hmm. And I think Japan is benefiting from this, this safe haven bid, if you will. And that's something that I don't see going away in 2024. So basically, it's benefiting from not being China. And for those investors who want Asia um, ex-China, Japan is the place to be. And also not having a Donald Trump about to uh, <laughs> trying to retake power. Yeah. So I think that that's that's a positive. And I think I think investors really are looking at Japan. They're saying, you know, for all of its fleas, for all of its problems, Japan is the sort of least ugly major market in the world at the moment. And I think for valid reasons, I mean, you know, we can talk about the demographics and how in the long run, um, those are those are forces that investors should be worried about. But, but if you're thinking about 2024, 2025, you're looking at the global economy and the shocks to come. Japan does look like a reasonably, you know, warm bath, if you will. Okay, well, we'll see if it gets there very soon. Uh, I suspect it will in the next few days, but uh, but let's see. Thank you very much indeed, William. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William you, Pesic. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting in Taipei. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.